even better. So, um, tidying up art, I mean, I have to say, it's, that's a relatively new term. You won't be familiar with it. Uh, I mean, I, it's a hobby of mine that I've been indulging in for the last few years, and it all started out with this uh, picture of the American artist Donald Backler I had hanging at home. I had to look at it every day, and after a while, I just couldn't stand the mess anymore this guy was looking at all day long. Yeah, I, I, kind of, I kind of felt sorry for him. And it seemed to me even he felt really bad facing these unorganized red squares day after day. So I decided to give him a little uh, support and brought some order into neatly stacking the blocks on top of each other. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, I, th I think he looks now less miserable. <laughs> and it, it was great. With this, with this experience, I started to look more closely at modern art. And I realized how, you know, the world of modern art is particularly topsy-turvy. And um, I can just show here a very good example. It's actually a, a simple one, but it's a good one to start with. It's a picture by uh, Paul Klee. And we can see here very clearly, it's, it's a confusion of color. <laughs> Yeah, the, yeah the, artist, the artist doesn't really seem to know where to put the different colors, the, 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 the various pictures here, of the various elements of the picture. The whole thing is unstructured. We, we don't know, Mr. Mr. Clay was probably in a hurry. I mean, maybe, maybe he had to catch a plane or something. I mean, we, we can see here he started out with orange, and then he already ran out of orange. And, um, here we can see he decided to take a break for a square. And I would like to show you here my uh, tidied up version of this uh, picture. And, <laughs> yeah, and we, can, we can see now what was barely recognizable in the original. 17 red and orange squares are juxtaposed uh, with just two green squares. Uh, yeah, that's great. So, um, I mean... <laughs> That's, I mean, that's just tidying up for beginners. I would like to show you here a picture which is a bit more advanced. <laughs> um, what can you say? What a mess. I mean, <laughs> um, you see, everything, everything seems to have been scattered aimlessly around the space. Uh, if my room back home had looked like this, my mother would have grounded me for three days. So um, I'd like to, uh, I wanted to reintroduce some structure into that picture. And, uh, yeah, it's, that's really advanced hiding up. Yeah, so, right. Hey. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Sometimes people clap at this point, but that's actually more in Switzerland. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you know. Yeah, we, we Swiss are famous for chocolate and cheese. Uh, our trains run on time. We are only happy when things are in order. But um, to go on. Here is a, a very good example to see. This is a picture by Juan um, Miró. And, um, yeah, we can see here the artist has drawn a few lines and shapes and dropped them any old way onto a yellow background. And, um, yeah, it's the sort of thing you produce when you're doodling on the phone. And, um, so, and here's my... Uh, um, you can see... Now the whole, thing takes, the whole thing takes up far less space. It's more economical and also more efficient. I mean, with, with this method, Mr. Miro could have saved canvas for another picture. So, but I can see in your faces that you're... you're <laughs> Sorry, the whole thing's about 17 minutes, so I wasn't going to show you the entirety of it, but you can find it on tedtalks.com. All right, so why in the world uh, would I start this morning by showing you this video? 
And the reason is, is because I think that as people, we are very good at systematizing and organizing and structuring, and in doing so, we can miss the picture. I think we can miss something vitally important, and I think that we do this all the time with Scripture. Okay, you pick a topic. For instance, you want to know what the Bible says about baptism, and so what we do is we'll look up 10 verses, we'll rip them out of context, and we'll come up with something that we say, okay, here's what we believe about baptism. Right? Or what does Scripture teach about jealousy or drinking or picture or preachers or you know, whatever you want to do. Pick a topic and we find some verses, we put them in order, we come up with a picture that looks a certain way. Okay, and that picture may even be mostly true, but it's missing something. Right? It's missing the setting that God gave it. Okay, honestly, there are times in my ministry I wish that we had never invented the concordance. Because I think a lot of times what we are guilty of as Christians is we tidy up the Bible. Okay? I think the Bible is a lot of things. Obviously, the Bible is the Word of God. It gives us some great advice on lots of life issues. Okay? The Bible is worship material. It's history. It's theology. It's the Bible, right? Okay? But in addition to all of those things... The Bible is also art. It's literature that uses words to paint verbal pictures that are supposed to hit us in the same way a painting or a sculpture or a scene from nature hits us. For instance, you can go outside and you can look at a sunset, right? You've all seen sunsets before, right? You've looked at a sunset and you've admired its beauty. Now, what you could do is you could get a scientist to come and explain all of that to you, right? And talk about curvature of the earth and refracted light and list out all the exact colors that you're seeing and why your eye picks out these colors and not other colors. And we could get a list of things that are very true about that sunset. But what's more impressive, all the data about a sunset or going out and looking at one? The Bible as art is supposed to hit us on a looking at it emotional, visceral, gut level. Okay, the Bible is much more than a book of facts or logic. And I think this is important to how we do ministry because often in ministry we try to use logic and reason to get out of problems that we got into for emotional reasons. And then we wonder why we're not more successful at getting out of our messes. So much of our lives are driven by passions and joys and hopes and fears. We are not driven by pure logic or reason. For instance, I'm a reader. Uh, Before we had kids, I read several books on what having kids was going to be like. I learned a lot of things, right? There's a whole section of books at any bookstore about how to raise kids and how to do the parenting thing. I learned a lot by reading several books. Now, Can any of you who are parents say that any of those books would ever prepare you for holding your child for the first time? You can have all the facts and figures, but life doesn't work on a facts and figures kind of level. God created us with minds and hearts, and he created his word to hit us in both places. I am a firm believer that worship is supposed to always be a matter of both mind and heart, and I think so is the Bible. Fair enough? All right, the reason for my mini rant this morning uh, is that as we hit Daniel chapter 7 in our study of the book of Daniel, we change genres entirely. 
Okay, the first half of Daniel is something we're all pretty familiar with. It's historical narrative, right? We're telling these stories. We're saying, here's what happened in history. And that's pretty good because we're pretty much familiar with historical narrative. Okay, we can turn on TV shows. We read other books. It's historical narrative. And we know what that genre is. The second half of Daniel, though, is a little more difficult because the second half of Daniel switches to apocalyptic literature. And now we've moved away from a more head logic kind of part of Scripture into this emotional, apocalyptic, heart kind of literature. Okay, other examples of this from Scripture are things like the book of Revelation, a few parts of Ezekiel maybe, okay, but really that's about it. Right? And apocalyptic literature is hard for us because we don't live in an apocalyptic kind of world. Hey, we're familiar with the other genres of the Bible, right? We know what letters are. We know what, what historical kinds of things are. We know about those other things. But there's nothing in our modern culture which is apocalyptic as a genre. And yet everybody reading Daniel for the first time knew what this genre of literature was. Hey, ancient people read apocalyptic kinds of things. Right? When I was in college studying um, apocalyptic literature, our professor had us read a whole bunch of other examples of apocalyptic stuff from the ancient world. And then when you turn from that and you read Daniel Revelation, you're like, oh, that's what they're doing. It, it makes sense if you have a context for it, but we've kind of lost that context. Okay, that's why for most of us who grew up with a good knowledge of Scripture, we know the first half of Daniel pretty well. Okay, for most of you in here, the story of Daniel in the lion's den wasn't new. The story of the fiery furnace, that wasn't new. Those are all the kinds of things that we grew up as kids reading about. But apocalyptic literature, Daniel, the second half, doesn't make it into any VBS curriculum. Okay? Children's Bibles don't typically include anything from the second half of this book because it's apocalyptic and it doesn't fit what we're comfortable with. Okay, so if we're going to read this second half of Daniel right... If we're not going to just tidy it up, okay, if we're going to read it as art, as the author intended it, then we need to avoid rushing to interpretation. Okay, and, and this is mostly a warning for me, right? Because I'm very quick to read a text and say, okay, here's the three things you need from this text. All right, apocalyptic literature resists that kind of systemization, that kind of tidying up. Okay, we need to let this hit us first off in a heart way, and only after it's hit us at that gut level can we then ask, okay, now what's the logic of it? What am I supposed to do with this? Is that fair? Okay, so as we read from Daniel chapter 7, I want you to let this hit you at a heart place. Okay, I want you to visualize this. Recognize what vivid word pictures Daniel is painting for us. You're supposed to be able to see this in your mind and feel really the terror of the first part of this Daniel chapter 7. Okay, so here's the story. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. Okay, in the first place, that number four is extremely significant. To a Jewish mind, to someone versed in apocalyptic text, the number four encompasses everything. Okay, as in, there's four directions of the compass. From every direction of heaven, we have the churning of the great sea. Okay, sea is also important. 
Okay, where do we first hear the sea? Okay, it's Genesis chapter 1. The sea is not some calm, tranquil thing that we sit by and watch as we relax, right? The sea is a force of chaos. It's a force of creation. It was out of the chaos. It was out of the waters that God brought forth life. So right off the bat in this vision, who is responsible for these beasts? Who is responsible for the terror that we experience? It's God. Verse 4. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. Okay, the first beast to climb out of this water is the lion. He's the most regal of the beasts. You notice it's a winged lion, making it even more majestic still. Okay, but then the wings are torn off of the beast, and you would think this is a good thing for those of us who have to face this beast. Okay, but then the one advantage that we have over the beasts is taken away from us. Hey, lions are faster and stronger and much more mighty than you or I. So what is the only reason that we kill more lions than lions kill us? It's that we're smarter than they are. But that's been taken away because very specifically, this lion is given the mind of a person. This is no longer a fair fight. Verse 5. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. Okay, specifically flesh in this is usually human flesh. Okay, the second beast is a bear, but it's a bear that's already eaten. How do we know it's already eaten? Because it has three ribs in its mouth already. Okay, he is the biggest of the first three beasts. He's already destroyed other creatures before. And yet a voice from heaven says to continue eating. Eat until you are filled with flesh. Okay, the implication here is the appetite of this bear will not be satisfied. And he has divine permission to eat as much as he wants. Okay, how do you stop feeding a bear okay, when you run out of food, right? Right? The idea here is it doesn't matter how many people this monster has already destroyed. He will not be satisfied until he has eaten you too. This is supposed to be terrifying. Verse 6. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. Okay, if the second beast is, is notable for its voracious appetite, the third beast is notable for its terrifying speed. Okay, the leopard was the fastest of the animals. And on this one, we've made him even faster because we've given him not one set of wings, but two sets of wings. Okay, there is no possibility in this that you will ever be able to outrun him. Yet again, we see this beast, we should be filled with terror. Verse 7, after that in my vision, at night I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. Okay, what's the only thing ancient people knew of that was stronger than bone? It's iron. 
It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Right next comes a beast so terrifying, we don't even have a name for it. This is the most powerful of the beasts. It's covered in horns, it's covered in eyes, has teeth. It will kill anything and everything in its path. Okay? Daniel says this is just pure horror. Okay, so imagine for just a minute that you're seeing these beasts come up out of the churning waters one after the other, and you have to go out and fight against these beasts. Okay, how long would you last? Okay, you don't get to take anything with you. It's not like you get to take your grenades and your gun and your rocket launcher with you. Okay? You're going out, and just through your own strength, through your own power, you have to stand in battle with these beasts. How long would that fight last? before you were ripped into pieces and eaten. Okay, that's the terror. That's the hopelessness that we are supposed to feel before we turn the page and then read verse 9. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Okay, that phrase, Ancient of Days, literally means someone who has lived through all of the days. Who was here at the very first day is the Ancient of Days. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were open. Okay, we tend to picture heaven as a very peaceful place, right? I mean, if you ask most of us, draw a picture of heaven, what do you think of? There's, it seems like there's always blue ambient light, there's peaceful music, it's very tranquil, everybody gets their own cloud, everyone gets their own harp, you know, you're eating grapes, someone's feeding to you one at a time. It's all extremely peaceful, sounds a little bit boring if we're being quite honest, right? It doesn't sound like the kind of place I want to spend all of eternity, but maybe the kind of place I'd like to get away from my kids for a weekend, right? We have this very nice, calm, soothing picture of heaven. That's not what Daniel sees in chapter 7. When Daniel sees the throne room of God Almighty, he sees something else entirely. He sees a raging river of fire. He sees a courtroom filled with so many people you could never count them. He sees the Ancient of Days ascend a throne that is more impressive and more powerful than anything you can imagine. And then as he sits down, he, he settles the quiet throngs, and then he opens the books of judgment. Okay, we're supposed to read this and think, okay, it's about to get real. Okay? Verse 11. Then I continued to watch because the boastful words the horn was speaking. Okay, which is almost comical, right? In the face of the Ancient of Days, the little horn is still boasting. Okay, this is not going to go well for the beast. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. Okay, what is the one force that can conquer the raging seas 
Okay, it is the sea of fire commanded by the Ancient of Days. And I'll pay close attention to the next part. Okay, this is where we've been building in this entire vision for all of this. Okay, here we finally have the climax of the story starting in verse 13. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Okay, we won't take the time this morning to read the second half of Daniel 7. Okay, but there Daniel tells us that this is very symbolic. He tells us that the four beasts represent four great kingdoms. He tells us the horns on the last beast represent a long succession of kings. And the point of all of this vision is that we are waiting for God to bring about the Son of Man who will bring into existence a kingdom that will endure forever. That's Daniel 7. All right, we can break this down a little bit. I think there's some value in that. Okay, we'll start with the tidying up of Scripture part. Okay, but I don't want you to lose the emotion of that. I don't want you to lose the terror that you're supposed to feel at the beginning and then the relief that hits you like a flood as you finally hit the Ancient of Days. All right, here's the vision. Okay, the lion is undoubtedly Babylon. Okay, this dream corresponds really well to the vision of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had way back in Daniel chapter 2 when we talked about the different layers of the statue. Okay, the most regal, the most majestic of all those kingdoms was Babylon. Okay, but after that would come, a, would come a kingdom that was more hungry, that would be bigger in size, that would devour more nations, but would lack the glory of the previous kingdom. Okay, Daniel lives to see the transition from Babylon to Persia. Okay, the bear is the Medo-Persian Empire. But then, after the bear, would come a kingdom followed by what remarkable characteristic? It was speed. The leopard is Greece. Easily, the quickest world conquest happened when Alexander the Great conquered the world. He burned through Persia so fast nobody saw him coming. The entire world was shocked when this young man conquered the world. Interestingly, After his death, the empire falls into the hands of his four great generals, known as the Diodici. How many heads did the leopard have? Four. How many pieces was Alexander's kingdom divided into right after he conquered it? Four. But then, a beast more powerful still arises who has teeth of iron and claws of bronze. The fourth beast will conquer the entire world, will persecute God's people again and again, will feature a long succession of kings. It will be around much longer than those previous three kingdoms, and it will boast and bluster even as it's being destroyed. Who's the fourth beast? It's Rome. Easily. Alright, and then here's the important part. It is during the reign of this fourth beast that the Ancient of Days will empower the Son of Man with all authority, glory, and power, 
and he will establish a kingdom that will never end. Now, who is most famous in Scripture for calling himself the Son of Man? Okay, just let it sink in for a minute that over 500 years before Jesus was born, Daniel saw how this was all going to play out. Okay, and just think about it for a minute that the kingdoms that followed fit exactly what Daniel saw. Okay, the characteristics of all of those kingdoms fit exactly the vision of Daniel. Okay, so the logic, the head part of this apocalypse is that one of the reasons you and I can have confidence in Jesus as our Savior is because God told us about the Jesus plan centuries before it ever happened. Okay? God knew how this was all going to work, and so who was in charge of it the whole time? It wasn't the beasts. It was God. Okay? That's good news, right? All the pieces match to make Jesus be the Messiah. All right, but I don't want us to just leave it there. I don't want us to just leave it at that, that headpiece. Right? I want us to hit the heart of this as well. Because how is this text supposed to hit us in the gut? Okay, and I think the first thing that the original readers of Daniel would have heard that I think we need to hear as well is the message that salvation is coming. And if you're taking notes, I want you to write down two things this morning. This is number one. Write down salvation is coming. Okay, because you and I can endure anything so long as we know that salvation is coming. All right? You can put up with any inconvenience. You can put up with any struggle in your life. You can put up with any torture. I don't know what else is happening in your life right now, but I know that you can endure it so long as you know that it does not get the last word. So long as you know that salvation is coming. You know, I listen to Dave Ramsey quite a bit on the radio, and he says, you know, you drive like no one else so that later you can drive like no one else. Okay? What he means is you drive a car kind of like what I'm driving now, okay? and you save your money so that eventually you can drive the car you want to drive. Right? You put up with whatever you're dealing with now, so long as you know that's not the final word, something better is coming. Okay? I remember when we were in the hospital for months on end with Luke, and we endured that in large part because we knew that sometime we're going home. Okay? And when your focus is on the good thing that's coming down the road eventually, you can endure anything right now. Again, I don't know what you're facing in your life today. I don't know what problems you have. I don't know what's going wrong. I know a few of you in your stories and some of the things that are going terribly wrong in your life right now. And what the Bible tells you is that that will not get the last word because ultimately salvation is coming. We have hope. Now, Jesus has already come. We have salvation now. But there are still some things in our lives that need redeeming. But don't worry, because salvation is coming. All right, here's the second piece of this, and then we'll be done. And that is that your salvation comes by waiting on God. In other words, you don't defeat the beasts by being stronger than they are. Okay, the point of the vision is that those beasts are stronger than you, they're faster than you, they're smarter than you. It doesn't matter how hard you fight, you will not overcome the beasts. The only way those beasts will be defeated is that the Ancient of Days will empower the Son of Man to fight them for you. Your salvation comes by the Savior fighting your battle for you. So again, I don't know what all you're facing, 
but I know that you will not get through it on your own power. Again, one of the hardest things that, that hit us when Luke was in the hospital for so long was that I didn't have anything to do, right? I wanted to do something, okay? Especially most of us men, we're kind of fix-it people. We think, okay, I'm going to handle my own problems, right? Okay, I want to fix stuff. Something goes wrong, I want to fix it myself. Okay, but when we were in the hospital with Luke, there was nothing for me to do. All I could do was sit in prayer and wait on God. That's a hard place to be. And yet it's also a, a relieving place to be because that takes the burden off of me. Okay, the salvation that will come in your life does not come by you being bigger, smarter, stronger. The salvation that comes in your life comes when we wait on God and we allow God to fight our battles for us. Salvation belongs to our God. All right, at this time in our service, we're going to sing a few verses of an invitation song. Uh, during the singing of this song, I will be down front. And if you have anything you'd like to talk about or pray about or anything that, that we can do as a church for you, now is the time to come and, and talk about that. Um, but before we sing that song, let's close with a word of blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and give you peace. Let's stand and sing.